This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I'm going to be way ahead of the curve on this for you. So you love Malcolm Gladwell. You love that kind of content, Michael Lewis type stuff, where you're going to get an education and you're going to get an insight about something and there's going to be research to back it up. But more than that, there's going to be stories or a narrative that allows you to really understand that. And later on, you're going to say, oh, Anthony Anarino introduced me to Derek Thompson's work. I was unaware of it, but now I am. The book is called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction, and I picked it up on the title alone because I've always been interested in what causes something to become a hit, and there's not a better book for explaining this to you. Derek Thompson is an editor at The Atlantic Magazine, another publication that I read fairly religiously, and I'm aware of his work there as well. You are now going to be introduced to Derek through the In the Arena podcast, and I promise you're going to learn something, and I promise you're going to want to go pick up the book Hitmakers. This is Derek Thompson, In the Arena. Hey, Derek, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Big fan, longtime fan of the Atlantic. Uh, Jealous that you have the job there and jealous of your massive writing chops. Oh, thank you so much. What I know as somebody who's published two books now is that to write a book is a labor of love and you absolutely have to fall in love with something and you have to get hooked on some idea or else you don't go to the trouble to write a book, especially one as well thought out and as well researched as your book, Hitmakers. What was it that hooked you and why did you write this book? Thank you so much, first of all. And I completely agree. I mean, books can be a pain in the butt and you have to love it. You have to wake up excited to work on something that's hard because, you know, putting together 300 pages on an idea is difficult. Sometimes I joked that a book has to solve for what I call the broken elevator problem. And the broken elevator problem is that you have to be able to sum up your book in five seconds. Uh, The elevator pitch, you have to be able to say, my book is about hits in pop culture history and what those hits tell us about the science of why we like what we like, why things become popular. You have to have that brief pitch. But then if the elevator breaks down and you're stuck in the elevator for people with eight hours, right? That's about how long it takes to listen to a book or read a book. You have to fulfill that problem as well. And so that was a fun challenge to work on. And, you know, you've you've been through this twice. I've been through it once. This is my first book. I love the writing process, but the editing process feels like being stuck in an elevator for eight hours. Yes, indeed. There, there really is not only the, the broken elevator problem, but the broken elevator problem combined with a kind of intellectual torture problem. So <laughs> we won't spend too much time on that. We don't want to get your listeners too down. But basically, you know, what is the thing that I fell in love with? The answer is that I find popularity inherently fascinating because it is so weird. It is so weird when you look at fads that become popular, books that turn out to be exceptionally popular, even though you think that they're terrible, 
movies that are popular and you want to know how did they come together? Something like Star Wars. What's the history of this movie? Well, how did George Lucas think of it? And it turns out that the story of Star Wars is fascinating because George Lucas basically had a terrible movie on his hands until he edited it and finally created the classic that is Star Wars. So I find popularity to be inherently fascinating, not only because of the products, but also because pop culture is this mirror that's held up in front of a culture that reflects the true nature of that culture. That's they, a scary, it, scary thought you just shared with us. <laughs> well, it is. It's a, it's a, imagine if a mirror could show you the insides, the invisible brain. That's what culture is. It is the best possible reflection that we have of who we really are. So in studying culture and cultural products, which is sort of the officious term for books and movies and music and television shows and digital memes... In studying this stuff, you're not just studying the products themselves and learning how you can make similarly successful products too, which is a part of the book. You're also studying what people are, who they are, and what they don't tell us, even when we ask them good questions. I want to go through a couple ideas in the book that I found fascinating. And one of the things, so you've already over-indexed on the intelligence quotient here for a podcast guest. So thank you for that. You're also an exceptional storyteller. In the books that I write, I'm basically just teaching somebody how to do something. These are stories, though, that when I read them, I have no idea that Monet wasn't popular in his time. I mean, right. I, I see this and I'm thinking, how would he not have been popular in his time for me to know who Monet is now? Can you explain the mere exposure effect and just help people understand what that is and how it works on us? Yeah, sure. And I, and I can connect it to Monet as well. So basically, let me start this way. I wanted this book to be true. I wanted to find psychological concepts that were valid and that had been essentially reified over and over. And that's tough now because there's a lot of psychological studies that you know maybe you're familiar with, your audience is familiar with, where with reproducible studies, they tend to be overturned. But fortunately for this book, the oldest psychological principle, maybe in the discipline's history, is this concept, mere exposure effect. And it says very simply that the mere exposure of any stimulus to us biases us toward that stimulus. In English, we have a deep bias for familiarity. We like songs that are familiar. We like movies that are familiar. We like ideas and cuisines and even people's faces that are familiar. And even though we tell ourselves, even though we lie to ourselves by saying that we are creatures of newness, we love novelty, we love consuming the hottest new fashion, we love to be open to new ideas, the reality is that we love new products that sneakily remind us of old products, what I call in the book familiar surprises. So how does this story relate to Monet? Well, in the 1860s, 1870s, when Impressionism is sort of getting its start, Impressionism is despised. The Impressionist, the term in the time in France is called les intransigeants, the intransigence. They were really hated by the Academy. One of the Impressionist painters, however, who is independently wealthy is a guy named Gustave Caillabat. And Gustave Caillabat is now considered, according to a recent National Gallery exhibit of his, the least famous Impressionist painter. But this guy collected all of his friends' unsellable works. If Monet couldn't sell a painting, he'd buy it. If Renoir couldn't sell a painting, he'd buy it. So this guy, Caillabat, which whom I imagine very few of your listeners have heard of, I had not heard of him, he dies in the 1890s and he bequeaths his collection to the French State Museum. This is the Musée de Luxembourg. 
And the Musée de Luxembourg, the French state, says, absolutely not. You know, your artwork that you've collected is terrible. We hate it. But after a long haggling, after an enormous controversy, which raised sort of the attention level around this collection, the collection is finally hung in a French state museum. And it created an enormous controversy and and sensation. Thousands of people came in to see the Impressionist Gallery in the Musée de Luxembourg. And these paintings became extremely famous in France. And who just happened to be the seven Impressionist painters that Gustave Caillebotte collected? Their names were Monet, Manet, Cezanne, Degas, Renoir, Pissarro, and Sisley. Even today, 130 years later, they are the seven core Impressionist painters. And the only ones any of us have ever heard of. And the only ones we've heard of. And art historians have gone back and said, well, what connects these seven painters? Did they socialize together? Were they equally praised? Were they equally censured? The answer seems to be no. The only thing they share in common is that Gustave Caillebotte collected them. (laughs) Which means that this accident of history, this early death to Gustave Caillebotte when he was in his early 40s, set off this incredible chain reaction whereby his collection got this enormous exposure, that word again, by the French State Museum, which means that the next generation of art historians looked exclusively to these seven to determine who what the Impressionist canon was, which means the next, next generation looked to these seven again, and the mere exposure effect rolled through time. And so in conclusion, what I'm saying is that when we see Monet's water lilies, we are seeing the same paint that 130 years ago was considered a blot on the art scene of Europe. But we're not just seeing the paint. We're also seeing familiarity. We are seeing a signal that we should like this, or we are at least seeing something that we recognize to be famous. And Monet is inextricable from the fame and familiarity that we're all attached to. And so in many ways across culture, from ideas to movies to art, when we're evaluating the quality of an idea, we should always check ourselves to say, do we like this idea because it's good or do we like it because it is familiar? We have to check against our own familiarity biases. And the interesting part of this story for me was the art professor or psychology professor, I forget which, who shows people Impressionist and uh, they show the frequency of other Impressionist artists at a greater frequency than the ones that you would know. And it turns out that that exposure to the other artists in greater frequency causes them to like those paintings more than what we know as the most popular Impressionist paintings of all time. That's right. So yeah, the short story there is that a Cornell professor, James Cutting, says, okay, can I create a kind of parallel universe in which the Kaibat 7 never existed? In my class, he says, I'll show people mostly unfamous Impressionist paintings by unfamous Impressionist artists over and over again throughout my class. And then at the end of the class, he asked his students, who were not art historians, this was a, a psychology class, what Impressionist paintings they liked the most. And it turned out that these psychology students preferred the paintings that they had seen the most, even though they were by unfamous Impressionist painters. So once again, he proved the same idea, which is that in many ways, the sort of art that we like isn't necessarily like the platonic best. It just tends to be the styles and maybe the literal paintings with which we're most familiar and again, you know, I, I, you know, some people I imagine, you know, listening to this, certainly when I talk about it, are like, you know, I, I don't care about art. Like, why is this important? It's important because the mere exposure effect teaches us that familiarity, distribution, exposure is worth almost as much to the reception of the idea as its quality. 
And if we want people to fall in love with our products, if we want people to fall in love with their ideas, we need to think about distribution and familiarity and exposure as much as we think about designing the perfect product or coming up with the perfect idea. And in a day where social media is so dominant, I think the power of attention and the mere exposure effect, I mean, it gives me pause when you even just talk about it. You have to think about why do I like that? And do I like that because I really like that? Or have I just been exposed to it enough that I, I'm supposed to like it? Right. To pick a very 20, 2017 example, the most recent studies on fake news seem to suggest that fake news becomes more believable the more you see that headline. I mean, this is a, a, a concept that clearly underlines advertising, right? Branded advertising, that if you see a brand over and over and over, you need to think less about it when you confront it in a store, which means that it's an easier purchase. And this goes to another psychological principle that I find really fascinating, which is called fluency, fluency or disfluency. So these are metacognitive ideas. That means we have a feeling about our thoughts. Some thoughts feel easy. Some thoughts feel hard. And the term for easy thinking is fluency, and the term for difficult thinking is disfluency. And for the most part, what people seem to want in life is fluency. You know, they want cuisines that they're familiar with. They like reading newspapers that have their own political bias. They like listening to music over and over again. In fact, 90% of the time we listen to music, we're listening to a song we've already heard. That's an Ohio State University fact. 90% of the time we listen to music, it's a song that we've already heard. But what we really like, I think, from art, from culture, even from you know, advertising and products, is when disfluency and fluency interact. So imagine, for example, that you are traveling in a foreign country and you don't speak the local language. Maybe it's you know, Romania or Bulgaria or something. And you're looking at all these signs and it's really difficult to figure out where you are and you're lost and you're anxious and afraid. That's disfluency. And then you turn around and you see a friend from high school or college. And you know in that second that that person speaks the local language and you've been found. That's fluency. And we hunt for these moments of disfluency turning into fluency everywhere. In fact, psychologists have a particular and lovely term for it. It's called the aesthetic aha. We have a, an actual rush of good feelings when we move from that anxiety to that sense of fluency. So let's think about it in, in terms of you know, cultural products. It's a song where there's sort of an anxious verse that drops into like a perfect familiar click of a melody. It's a mystery story where you don't exactly know who the killer is, but you're really, really anxious to find out. And then suddenly, aha, the light bulb goes, goes off. You know who the murderer is. We love these aesthetic ahas. And I think we hunt for them across the cultural landscape. I want to um, talk about music for, for just a minute and the fact that there are right now groups like Spotify who can actually predict hits. How do you predict the hit? Because sort of the, the Monet example, how do you ever know that this person is going to force these paintings on the arts in France in a will, which first to me is shocking that the arrogance to say you will take these and you yeah, will right. put them in your gallery. And they're, they're probably thinking, who the hell do you think you are? You right. know, we, we, we do this very carefully. But we do also, we know some things. So how do we know that a song is going to be a hit? Yeah. So let me tell two stories about music. Sure. Maybe two of my favorite stories about music. The first, let's start with Spotify. And this goes right to the point that I was making. Spotify has this amazing app or program called Discover Weekly. 
which is a list of 30 new songs automatically downloaded to your Spotify account every Monday that they think you're going to like. They use a system called collaborative filtering in order to determine these songs, which essentially means that, let's say you, Anthony, you like songs A and B, and I like songs A, B, and C. They'll assume that since we both like songs A and B, you will also like song C, like me. And that's essentially how they fill out Discover Weekly. When they initially were designing this app, they wanted all the songs and all the artists to be completely new. It was, after all, Discover Weekly. But there was a bug in the algorithm that accidentally let slip through some familiar songs and some familiar artists. And so they fixed the bug. And it turned out that after they fixed the bug, the popularity of the app plummeted because it turned out that people only liked Discover Weekly when there was an element of familiarity to it. And so this speaks so deeply, I think, to the way that familiarity and surprise interact when it comes to human liking. When we are interacting with a product, even one that we expect is all about discovery and newness, we still want to discover familiarity inside of it. We want to open up the door and recognize the thing that's in there. And so I think that's a really important sort of principle to understand in terms of designing for both familiarity and surprise at the same time. The second story about music that I think goes very deeply to sort of how the human mind works is a, a mouse study done at Ohio State University by a musicologist named David Huron. And David Huron understands this very fundamental principle about music, which is that repetition is the god particle of music. You can take almost any sound in the world and repeat it at a common interval, and the brain suddenly hears that, not as cacophony, but as music. Repetition turns cacophony into that which we recognize as rhythm and song. So what he'll do, though, is he'll play a B note for a mouse, and the mouse will turn its head. And he'll play a B note again for a mouse, and the mouse will turn its head. And B, 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 over and over again, until the mouse habituates to that B note. And then at that very moment, instead of playing a B note when the mouse is about to habituate, he instead plays a C note. The mouse will turn its head to the C note, but it'll also dishabituate the mouse from the B note. So it turns out if you want to scare a mouse for the longest period of time with the fewest number of notes, there's a very specific pattern that you want to play. And it goes B, B, C, B, C, D note to dishabituate from both the B and the C note. And if you look at that pattern of B, B, C, B, C, D, and you replace the letter B with verse and the letter C with chorus and the letter D with bridge, you get the following song structure as suggested by a mouse dishabituation study. Verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. So what this says to me is that at a very deep mammalian level, we have a specific preference for the interaction of familiarity and variety within music the same way that we have a preference for familiarity and surprise in lists of music. So this preference for familiarity and surprise is so fundamental that it's almost fractal. You know, It exists at the level of songwriting, at the level of song construction, at the level of playlist construction, and then maybe even at the level of genre appreciation. These do seem to be the two fundamental God particles. As a young kid, I fronted a hard rock band and <laughs> new bands would come out. Like I'm, I'm thinking back to like 85 and Guns N' Roses and I hear it and it sounds so different than everything else. 
I immediately don't recognize it and don't like it. But the more it gets played, yes, the more right. it turns into our music. And and this is years before anybody else catches on to Guns N' Roses, a couple years. And then by some, I guess, luck and circumstance for getting a hit like Welcome to the Jungle or something like that, then it's played so much and it becomes everybody's music right. at that point. And then everything that they do after that is familiar enough that we know it. It's It's interesting that the fact that you have to have some familiarity combined with a novelty to make something like that work. So yes. it's, it's not that it's just completely novel. It's novel, but with enough of what we already know and recognize that it's appealing to us. So I want to take this and just have you share the concept of neophilia mm. and the contribution that that makes, because there is a, there is a novelty component to this. That's right. There is a novelty component. This is not just about sequelizing everything. That's not only a boring suggestion, it's also a bad suggestion. It doesn't work to simply try to create derivatives of everything over and over and over again. So what I say in the book is that people are torn between neophilia, a love of new things, neophiles, and neophobia, a fear of anything that's too new. And I think the most underlined line in the book right now on Kindle is a line in the second chapter of my book where I'm talking about these concepts. And I say, to sell something familiar, make it surprising. But to sell something surprising, make it familiar. And this is my way of summarizing a concept from industrial design called Maya. This concept comes from Raymond Lowy, one of the fathers of industrial design, who's famous for his work on the Coca-Cola bottle, the first NASA spaceship, the 1953 Studebaker, the modern Greyhound bus and tractor. I mean, this guy was the Steve Jobs of the 1950s if Steve Jobs designed the entire infrastructural economy of the United States. He's an amazing figure. And his big theory of everything was called Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. The key, he said, is not to be safe. It's to be advanced. It's to push people as far as their taste can possibly go against the frontiers of that which is acceptable without breaking that barrier, without moving beyond acceptability, that that's where coolness lives and that's where pure and, and the most beautiful affinity lives. And so to go back to sort of my summary of it, to sell something surprising, make it familiar, to sell something familiar, make it surprising. I'll take really two quick examples. Let's say you are trying to sell something that is familiar. Let's say you are in movies and you are making a sequel to The Fast and the Furious, you know, the eighth sequel, the ninth <laughs> sequel. The, the, the challenge is not to make it familiar. You're starting with the same actors. You're starting with the same backstory. The key is how do you up the ante? I guarantee you that all the writers in that room are not thinking about how do we make this story as familiar as possible. It's how do we make this story as advanced as possible to get people back into the theater, right? To sell something familiar, the key is to make it surprising. But some people are dealing with the exact opposite problem. Some people are technologists. By definition, they are inventing new things all the time. Let's talk about this thing of like an AI assistant, for example. No one knows exactly how AI machine learning works. No average person that has a deep understanding of machine learning. So what do they do? They design things like Alexa 
to be as recognizable as possible. They have a lilting female voice when you talk to them. They're just like an ordinary assistant. Maybe the, another good example from technology history is when Steve Jobs is inventing the first consumer desktop computer. He has, there's that line in the Steve Jobs movie from the book where he says, when the computer turns on, it has to say hello. It has to look like a face. To sell something that is new, that is novel, the key Steve Jobs understood is to make it familiar, to make this stranger a friend. And so in, in thinking about how to apply Maya to one's own business, it's important to understand where, where are you starting from? What is your square one? Do you have a product that is fundamentally familiar or a product that is fundamentally surprising? And from that square one, you will know how to proceed. I want to um, move you forward in the book a little bit. There's a, a story that you tell about teens and randomness and Bill Haley. And <laughs> I love this story. I, was, I actually switched back and forth between a Kindle and audio book because of whisper sync. So I can pick up wherever I left off. And I was in the shower listening to this story. And when I got out, I had to call my dad to ask him about <laughs> this, uh, the, the, the movie. And uh, because I knew he would be fascinated with the Bill Haley story because he grew up, you know, listening to rock and roll when it was born. I w- want to ask you to talk about the Bill Haley story and the effect of randomness in making something popular. And just as a starting point for this, he said that everything that you describe in the book around Blackboard Jungle was exactly like the 16 times he went to the movie theater to <laughs> see the movie. He said every time it was exactly the same. Keep Everybody's dancing. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> he was shocked by the story, though. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's an amazing story. Probably, probably the, my, you know, Raymond Lowy's history is, is amazing and should be a movie. But this might be the, the best sort of self-enclosed story in the book. So this basically is the story of, of Rock Around the Clock, which everyone knows. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. It's the second best-selling song of all time after A White Christmas, the first rock and roll song to ever hit number one in the Billboard Hot 100. You know, the sort of song that when people hear it, they're like, of course that's a hit, right? Of course that's catchy. Like, you don't need any long explanation to understand why people would like this song. What they don't understand is that when the song came out in 1954, it was a B-side, and nobody bought it. Like the the label really tried to push it down the throats of Americans, or but the the, the, the A side was horrible, right? And the A side was terrible too. Sixteen women and one man. Yeah, the song about a hydrogen bomb blowing up and <laughs> leaving the world to one man and like a harem of women. Not, uh, not, not exactly not, the sort of thing that would fly in 2017, I think. And and you understand why it's not a hit just by yeah. the description, right? Right. So, but basically, the song comes out and and you know it gets a little bit of of radio play but it just doesn't click at all. It just doesn't click. And so nine months pass and any cultural historian at the time is going to say, well, you know, Rock on the Clock just wasn't good enough. But one of the several thousand people who bought the vinyl record was a 10-year-old boy named Peter Ford. And this is where the story gets surreal. Peter Ford is the son of an actor named Glenn Ford. And Glenn Ford is starring in a movie called Blackboard Jungle, which is one of these juvenile delinquent movies of the 1950s, like Grab Without a Cause. It's amazing to go back to sort of the history of the 1950s. If you think people are freaking out about millennials today, there was a congressional commission put together to investigate the problem of teenagers in the 1950s. People just did not know what to do with them. They thought the teenagers were going to take over the world and burn everything down. So there was a lot of anxiety about them. And the director of this film, Blackboard Jungle, goes over to the Ford's house and he says, you know, I need a scary song to kick off 
this movie. I need a song that's, it's, I, I want a jump jive tune, he says, that sort of freaks people out. What do you got for me? And Glenn Ford, his star actor, says, you know, my favorite kind of music is Hawaiian folk, so uh, that's not going to cut it. But my son, Peter Ford, likes some racy music. Ask him. And so Peter Ford, this 10-year-old boy, Petey Ford, as his parents called him, hands the director of Blackboard Jungle a stack of vinyl records. And one of those vinyl records has a B-side called Rock Around the Clock. And Rock Around the Clock ends up playing at the beginning of Blackboard Jungle, the movie, in the middle of Blackboard Jungle, and at the end of Blackboard Jungle. And this is in May of 1955. And it is only several weeks after, I think two weeks, after Blackboard Jungle debuts in movie theaters across America, that Rock Around the Clock soars up the charts and becomes the number one song in the history of rock and roll. So in explaining, I think a lot of times, sort of scope out and, and share sort of what I take away from this story. When some people describe why a product becomes popular, Coke, the iPhone, a song, Star Wars, it's common to only focus on the qualities of the product itself, to say Coke is better because it tastes better. Star Wars is the most popular movie of all time because it's just the best. But the story of Rock on the Clock suggests that what sociologists or academics might call exogenous circumstances, things that have nothing to do with the core product, distribution, luck, happenstance, being in the right place at the right time. These might be just as important to the ultimate success of a product as its intrinsic qualities. Rock on the Clock sounded the exact same in 1954 when it was a flop and in 1955 when it was one of the biggest hits of the century. The difference was distribution and the difference was luck. And so I think it's always important as a producer of culture or an explainer of culture to factor in luck and distribution. That's a great story. Uh, there's even more to the story, though, about just having to get there. So people should read that just because that story oh, yeah, by it's, itself yeah. is, is it's so interesting that the song almost doesn't even get made. Right. And, and then when it does get made and Bill Haley's committed to this song, nothing happens, which has to be disappointing for nine months. And then to have something like the movie come along and just change the trajectory. Do you remember how many copies that record sold? It's Some in, shocking it's number. In the, it's in the tens of millions. It's uh, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but um, I think it's like fifty million. I mean, some I, insane I was, I was number. Say sixty million. Yeah, I think it's something like that. It's crazy, and and that probably and that undersells obviously its its reach because you know there's lots of people that don't own a copy of Rock on the Clock who've heard it a hundred times in their life. I mean, this is one of those cultural products that achieves something like ubiquity. You know. Yeah. There's only a handful of these that, that were literally everybody knows about it, that it stands the test of time. And this is one of those songs. In the 70s, it was the opening for Happy Days, which was on, right. you know, e every night. And I think there's a lot of people who came across it that way. One more question for you. I want to talk about the intentionality of going viral. Mm. And I want to talk about that myth. And what does virality mean? How does that happen? So probably the most controversial chapter of the book is called The Viral Myth. And basically, I think that the way that we think about virality in modern culture is just really wrong. Virality has become a catch-all term that means that thing got popular really quickly, and I have no idea how, so I'll just say it went viral. In epidemiology, virality means something pretty specific. It means many, many generations of intimate infection. What it doesn't mean is broadcast. So for example, 
if there's a Toyota commercial in a Super Bowl that everyone loves, no one says that commercial went viral, right? It very obviously was distributed to 130 million people at the exact same time. That's a broadcast. So you can think about the distribution of information as existing along a spectrum between virality, which is many generations of one-to-one sharing, all the way to broadcast, which is one moment of one-to-one million exposure. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So I think that a lot of times, you know, throughout history, people have not really been able to understand. Does an idea like bell bottoms or, you know, women's suffrage, how exactly does it become popular? Is it viral or is it broadcast? It was impossible to know. These things didn't leave crumb trails. But on the internet, like ideas literally leave crumb trails. You can literally look at a, a tweet or a Facebook post and look at the information cascade, the map of the idea catching on from the initial poster to the one millionth reader or viewer. And when data scientists have looked at these information cascades and said, you know, does this cascade, does this map look like a virus or does it look like a series of diffuse broadcasts? The conclusion has been in 99% of cases, it looks like a diffuse broadcast. What seems to be happening, for example, with like a viral Facebook post is that even if you or I, an end user, sees three of our friends sharing it, often three of those friends got it from the same source that is obfuscated, that's hidden from us. So for example, if I write an article for The Atlantic, it's posted on The Atlantic's homepage, and then Drudge picks it up and like a zillion people see it on Drudge, and then finally some of them share it on your Facebook account, you seeing just these shares on Facebook are going to say, well, you know, it it went viral. Uh, All my friends are sharing it. What you can't see, though, is that the reason my article went so-called viral is because TheAtlantic.com and Drudge both posted it to millions and millions of people at once. These were broadcasters, but they were hidden by the information cascade, so I call them dark broadcasters. And my thesis of the viral myth is that an enormous, enormous amount of things that we think went viral purely and organically were in fact distributed by these dark broadcasters, by one to one million moments that are hidden by the shape of the information cascade. And one really quick example is the sort of fake news crisis and Russian propaganda networks during the election, that lots of people said, you know, a lot of this fake news was going organically viral, people were sharing this automatically. But upon investigation, it turned out that Russians were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and using bot networks and other networks of alt-right groups to distribute this fake news in an organized way. So essentially, they were using broadcast strategy to make people think that those pieces of content were going viral. They were tricking us. And I would like to think sort of optimistically that if the entire country had read the viral myth, they would better understand this. But I frankly think that a lot of those people reading and believing that fake news just wanted to believe it anyway. Two questions about your hopes and dreams. First, that everyone should read your book, which I support. It is a really good book. The second one, did you have something picked up by Drudge from The Atlantic that was broadcast? Not by Drudge. I am not to get uh, too explicit about my politics, but let us simply say that my politics are not exactly the sort of thing that Drudge would purposely broadcast. I have had stuff, though, picked up, you know, front page of Reddit, front page of Dig, front page of Huffington Post, you know, shared by, you know, like celebrities on Facebook. These are all broadcasters. These are all pages of the internet that have hundreds of thousands of concurrent 
viewers at, at some point. And so they, they are essentially the same as a television broadcast. And so, yeah, I, I have sort of experienced this effect many times. Yeah, well, you, this isn't the place for politics here. I'm immune to it now. I've developed an immunity <laughs> after years of being disappointed. So uh, it's it saved, you a lot, saved you a lot of grief in the last 12 months. <laughs> it's it saved me a lot of grief for decades now that I've just decided that happiness is more important than politics. Indeed. Listen, I appreciate you being here. Your book is exceptional. It's called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. I'm going to put links here for people to go out and pick the book up on Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And where else should we point people to learn more about you and your work? Great. They can follow me on Twitter at DKThomp, like the beginning of Thompson, DKThomp, and uh, go to The Atlantic. If you Google Derek Thompson, The Atlantic, you can find all of my work uh, listed for free in the public domain. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. This was so fun. That was Derek Thompson. You can find links to his work in the show notes. Do go out to Amazon.com or stop by your local Barnes and Nobles and pick up Hitmakers, the Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish every day. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino where I post most days. When you go to either of those locations, look for a link to the newsletter, my best work every week. It'll be in your inbox Sunday morning so you can hit the ground running on Monday. I'm Anthony Anarino. If you like this show, go out and rate this and leave me a review on iTunes. And until then, I'll see you next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.